This is London Calling. You are listening to Thought and Leaders. Hello, 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 and welcome again to another global podcast that is Thought and Leaders. Now, each week, as you know, I scour this beautiful planet to find the most inspiring and the most intriguing speakers out there. This week's no exception. We have Matthew Cooper. Hi. Now, you've got an amazingly interesting background. Your father was a preacher. The Christian environment I grew up in, there were positives in it when I was a kid. There was a Christian summer camp. So that was a really magical space. On the other side, it left a lot of marks, especially some of the theological approaches just kind of shaming the body sex is bad and your body is bad and pretty much everything is sort of bad and evil until proven otherwise the very binary view of the world us versus them kind of evangelical mindset very harmful but then there's mom now mom was a teacher or is a teacher is that right she actually yes so she went back to school i got a phd when i was in high school actually and then i went into teaching for a number of years and right now she is actually uh has stopped teaching at least for a period of time and is writing a book talking about talented people have you always been in kind of the management consultancy area I left college and then I went to McKinsey and Company, worked in management consulting for a number of years, which was fantastic and gave me the opportunity to travel all over the world. And then I moved into private equity, uh, which is more on the investment side of finance as opposed to the kind of consulting side of business, where I worked at two different firms, both overseas in Dubai and California for six plus years. Uh, before I started my own company in Silicon Valley, which was about seven years ago. What made you go into starting up this company? I co-founded with uh, my good friend, Nadeem Hamsani. And I think both of us had been working in consulting and, and investments for a long time. And what really drew us to the EarnUp concept was you know, personal stories really of both my co-founder and myself watching, you know, our parents and other people in our community go through a lot of pain and frustration dealing with their lenders. We started to look into it and really believe that there must be an easier way. There's a lot of glamour around the idea of a startup. Is it all that it's cracked up to be? You know, the startup world is a very intense and kind of messianic, you know, kind of mission that you set yourself on. It's very much a change the world sort of mission. The community is one of just a lot of very high intensity and high kind of output. Yeah. I, since I've been very young, have loved creating things. I just love that vision stage of thinking of something new, whether that's a drawing or a company Um, a piece of music and starting to make that into reality in the world. That was an incredible journey, you know, especially those first few years where you're just asking impossible questions and everybody's telling you this is 
not a good idea, except for the few people that are like, this is the best idea they've ever heard. <laughs> you know, for me, the intensity I put on myself, not anything anybody did to me of trying to make a business successful through all of the natural ups and downs, uh, you know, took a significant toll and was very challenging for me also. Yeah. It is a very intense environment. I think you can choose as in all things in life, how you want to engage with your environment. Uh, but I'm just sort of prone to a high level of perfectionism and wanting to do things really well and wanting to control the future. And those are very hard things to deliver. People are their own worst taskmaster. It's not necessarily safe or healthy for me today to pursue one thing in my life at the expense of everything else in my life. That said, um, you know, I got incredible satisfaction in a number of areas over time in my life by doing just that, you know, when I was younger, um, you know, starting in high school in some different areas, you know, rowing, for example, was one of those. I was obsessed with rowing. I rowed for like a decade and tried out for the national team and, you know, got me to college and D1 sports and all sorts of things really with just a complete myopic focus. You know, this is before my finance days. And that was really satisfying in a lot of ways. And it also probably kept me out of a lot of other trouble, um, <laughs> candidly, that I might have found myself in. So that then was what worked for me. I think today I'm trying to find more balance, I think, than and things that feel a little bit more even-handed. It seems that so many people, um, when it comes to their identity, it's intrinsically linked with the job that they do, the title that they have. Do you agree? Looking outside of yourself and those closest to you for affirmation and identity is incredibly dangerous. Um, and it's ephemeral and it's very passing and it's very natural. You know, we're pack animals, you know, that really want that sense of inclusion and support. But I think that if we look too far outside this immediate circle, which includes ourselves, uh, we, it's the Gatsby's green light, you know, you're chasing something that can never really be fulfilled. And you just have to scroll through Instagram to get a sense of how voracious that craving for, you know, other strangers affirmation is, and it doesn't look healthy to me. Things, and especially post COVID are tough. But the question is, who does the guy at the top turn to? That's right. I mean, there's, you'll hear often the kind of loneliness at the top discussion around how do the people that lead organizations of any type, whether that's a startup or probably a country or a nonprofit, where do they get support? And, you know, I was very fortunate to have a co-founder so that we were kind of peers in that kind of at the top experience, which was very helpful for me and my mental health. <laughs> but not everybody has that. And even then, it's just sort of two of you and you're still pretty isolated. I often analogize or think of it as you're no longer on the team. You know, you're not the one at the bottom sort of by the water cooler having fun and making fun of the, the bosses. You know, you are the boss that's getting made fun of. And that's I think, part of the job, but it's not initially one that goes away over time. You just have to find new ways to get support and community. And there's some things that just can't be re replicated. I heard a quote, which I'll misquote right now. <laughs> which is heroism is usually just a lack of detail. Mm. And that could be just a photo on Instagram, right? Not showing the 4,500 photos you took 
you know, to get that angle uh, or uh, or how how disastrous your life is or the fact you just cheated on your spouse or whatever is going on for you. Right. Um, but that can, I think, also manifest in any area of our lives, um, including these pieces that I've put out. I've written, you know, a few pieces or done these podcasts around mental health in my journey. And there's inherently just massive amounts that are left out. I would pray that's not because I'm obfuscating or image managing to the extent that I can. But there's still probably big pieces of information that might change the way people view me. And I don't know what to do with that reality. In truth, people aren't getting the full picture. And yet the people actually believe that they are, especially the younger generation. Yeah. So I guess I'll just agree and then disagree with the parts. Cool. Yeah. It's that fantasy crossing over into reality that I think is very dangerous for me, right? It's like, how much can I engage with these things and and maintain a strong sense of self-identity and self-esteem? And I have to put a lot of distance generally between myself and social media to maintain a sense of presentness and actually enjoyment in my life. And other people maybe can find different ways to navigate. I'm not sure about the generational comment. You know, I generally... I have had the benefit living up here to get to know one or two younger people like in their teens, being back here in Vancouver last year. They have a much healthier relationship with social media than many of the boomers, you know, people in their 50s and 60s. I know often they just look at social media and believe, especially news. They just believe because from a news source, it must be real. And there's a much higher level of skepticism I see, for example, amongst younger people that is like a healthier distance, like more questioning, less just being radicalized, you know, by what's on the screen. thing is that when it comes to brands and corporate culture, well, at least their public corporate uh, culture, you know, they talk about, you know, we're a brand that cares and we're into this cause and that cause. And we have coffee shops and we have creative areas and bean bags. But actually, I've been told, I can't say which company it is, but some really big brands, although they've got all these things, it's a bit superficial when it comes to literally working there. There's a lot of lipstick mission stuff in the corporate world of we're here to save the world. And it's like, you're actually there just to make money. And so you need to pressure test those things. I think if they matter to you, you know, in your, when you're evaluating companies or when you're deciding where to stay. They say that a little bit of pressure is great for everyone. Um, but of course, when pressure becomes anxiety, <laughs> that's a completely different thing altogether. And people use different mechanisms to cope. I understand that you turn to the mechanism of food. Is is that right? The diagnoses that I kind of relate to currently in terms of what I've been given by the mental health community is kind of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a fairly broad um, kind of bucket of, of symptoms, anxiety, which includes panic attacks from time to time, and depression, 
Uh, I've also been diagnosed with ADHD. And so those are kind of a group of diagnoses. And then I have tried probably everything under the sun to what I view is cope with those diagnoses. And one of the coping mechanisms that I used for a long time was a kind of various eating disorders, both extremes from like compulsive overeating and binge eating. And then on the other extreme to like anorexia and bulimia. And I've kind of had, and I'm very grateful to have been in a kind of recovery community and had a lot of recovery and sanity around those the last few years. Uh, but, you know, for 30, you know, 20 to 30 years, different versions of those were one of the primary kind of coping mechanisms I had, you know, to try to deal with the kind of just mental illness that and, and anxiety that I felt. I think it's understandable that people turn to either alcohol or indeed bulimia or anorexia because they can control that, but they can't kind of control other things. That sounds true for me, you know, wanting to use, control the things that I can control. And I think related to that is, I think I got a lot out of the obsession, you know, the obsession over my body, um, you know, kind of the body dysmorphia, which is just like not seeing my body as it actually was constantly obsessing and thinking it was in shapes and forms that it wasn't. And then all the obsessive food and exercise behaviors that I would do, I think those things, yeah, create a sense of control. They also just are a distraction. They're a dissociation. They allow me to get into obsession as opposed to just being in my body and being here in the present moment, you know, talking to you or being at my company or whatever it might be that day. And that escape is a big part, I think, of the motivation for me of what kept those things alive for a long time. It's interesting because when you were younger, you were into rowing and being the best and building up the body and that sort of idea. Do you think that put you under pressure? Rowing is probably a few things. Yes, it gave me good cover because rowing is a weight class sport. So it gave me good cover and almost an affirmation for staying very thin and small, uh, smaller than probably was healthy for me, um, you know, especially as I got later in my teen. Yeah. I think rowing also gave me this incredible sense of identity and peer support. It was just an incredible community where I felt really safe and felt very supported. And I was really good at it. And I hadn't really been good at anything in my mind, you know, till that point. Good, like being really good, you know, chosen first, you know, not last or middle of the pack. And that was an incredible high for me. You know, it gave me and it was kind of addictive being good at something and getting better at it and sort of dedicating that. So I haven't fully parsed out all parts of my rowing experience, but I think it had a lot of really beautiful parts, but also mm. got kind of mixed up in supporting some of these other behaviors like my eating disorders or compulsive exercising that were less healthy. Do you think that personal expectations as well as public expectations push CEOs you know, to prove that they're the best to themselves and to the others. Um, it's not easy, is it? You know, different people operate in different ways. There is a large part of our society and culture that glorifies leaders and founders and pop stars. You know, these are just like this concept of celebrity sort of comes to mind. 
um, which you only really get being very senior in somewhere, big pond or small pond, you know, where you have that kind of notoriety. Mm. So I think if people are craving that and, and lusting after that, then yeah, I think if you're not getting it, you'll find somewhere else that you can satisfy it. And um, I don't know what to do with that, you know, for myself or for others, like it's, it seems like uh, a hard thing to sustain over a long period of time. And also, again, is giving a lot of power to other people around you to provide my sense of self or other people's sense of self and, and worth, mm. which is, to me, I think, uh, you know, a, not a very sustainable place to, to live. I think when a lot of people think of uh, CEOs on a global scale, people start thinking about people like Elon Musk and, of course, Bezos. And, of course, Bezos is talking about the going to space and he says he wants to look down on Mother Earth and see we're all one family. And it sounds almost religious in a way. Mm. I think that idolization is always dangerous. You know, I think there's always going to be people that want that kind of focus. But... I think it's incredibly dangerous because it's all built on what you said earlier. And I'm not speaking about, you know, Bezos or Musk or anybody's like, I mean, I think it's more just the, the way that for me is I think about society. These idols are again, tend to be built on these very shallow archetypes of dreams and visions, you know, of what the, who these people are and what they're able to achieve. They can be used to inspire you know, I mean, that's to inspire people to do great feats or innovate or take big challenges. But a lot of the time, the way they're used is to berate and belittle and for people to look at themselves rather than say, you know, if you had done the right things, you would be able to achieve all that these people have achieved. That feels like the more common way that we use these idols, right? And that I think is really hard. And it's especially in the US, I mean, where I've been living most of the last decade, it's very dangerous. It's a very stratified society where people have very different, you know, resources and starting points and support. And so this kind of mythology of the individual, which is very powerful in America, as opposed to like the power of community, tends to just be something that's used to explain why one person stays poor and or sick and somebody else is not there are so many lies and and delusions built into that um it's very it's problematic as i understand it with you the internal pressure at one point collided head on with external pressure and it all kind of you know it really did come to a point was that during covid or after covid I've had sort of anxiety attacks and or these periods of really extreme anxiety and depression off and on since I was a teen. They became much more pronounced and scarier starting about maybe three years ago. Um, so I was been running the company for a number of years and it became just the nature of those mental health episodes of just like fear and anxiety and not being able to function or taking days off and kind of feeling the need to hide and like get out of just get out of life um, became more frequent and scarier. And, um, you know, my eating disorders and some other coping behaviors, like, like started smoking cigarettes, like things that I had never done that were just sort of these desperate desires to cope that became louder. And so 
I think what I started to do at that point, you know, with the support of my co-founder and, and my family was to, I took various periods off from my job to seek escalated care. And that started with kind of about a month, and this is in 2018, taking about a month um, to go into like an inpatient program where I was able to start to get more support around like my mental health that I was not able to access just in my normal life of counseling. So that was kind of where things started. And the quick version is that the last three years were kind of me going to these residential treatment programs for like a week or a month at a time, stabilizing and then coming back, you know, into my professional life. And I think residential treatment is amazing. Um, but Ultimately, I had a really scary descent in terms of my suicidal ideation and anxiety uh, last summer. So this is, uh, you know, summer middle of COVID that had sort of been building, I think, during COVID where I was suffering from a lot of more isolation, like a lot of people were than I had before. That led me to go to an emergency room where I was, I was actually an organ at the time and then go into an inpatient program through uh, my mental health provider here in Oregon. And while I was there, it was when I made the decision, you know, I'm not going to bounce back, you know, into corporate executive life. Like sometimes we just put things down because they're heavy. Doing things which are new in terms of leaving jobs and stuff like that. It's very difficult for a lot of people. You know, they've got mortgages to pay. They have responsibilities and then they get stuck in this job and that makes them even more anxious. Yeah. And then they're anxious anyway about the other stuff. And it's a bit like a whirlwind of anxiety where the future, the past, the present all gets sucked up into a tornado of total panic, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, we, I can get myself locked in these very small mental boxes really quickly, you know, where everything has to be done right now and I have to do this and I have to do that. And it, it that is just a, that binary, right? Black and white, good, bad. If I don't do my job well, the end of the world happens. And some people, that is maybe the reality. I can't speak to it. The reality for me was that I did have a lot of choice. Worst case scenario for me was losing everything and ending up back home living with my parents, right? Which is not a great outcome. That would have been very painful and humiliating. And also I would have survived and found a new way to be in the world. Not everybody has those layers of financial backup. But uh, I guess my experience is that even if you have these theoretical supports financially, like living back at home as a you know 30-year-old, uh, or 50 year old or whatever you might be, uh, it doesn't feel that way often. You know, it felt like life or death to me, you know, whether I was going to be successful and, and make, uh, you know, my career success. That's just uh, one of the delusions for me built on, I think, this desire to be good and get esteem and be affirmed, you know, and be special in the world. Uh, those things are hard. We are all encouraged to live in the now. In fact, this is the era of the now. What was yesterday, COVID and the past and all that stuff. Let's forget it. Let's build better and all that sort of thing. But the thing about living in the now is that too many people think that that's it. It's now and never anything else. But of course, it's part of an ongoing journey. And we haven't as yet reached the destination. Well, and this is the thing that I don't, that I can't reconcile is 
if if somebody else told me this is the gap between the way I talk to myself and view myself and the way that I would talk to you or anybody else, I think, and treat them. You know, if somebody told me, hey, I lost everything, I'm living at home, I'd be like, that sounds really hard. And you're still like a person that has value <laughs> in the world, right? And God, you know, what can I do to help you move forward? Where that is, I, I think the voice I would use with myself is a lot more aggressive and, you know, humiliating. And um, I don't know where that gap lives, but trying to close that gap is part of my spiritual path, certainly right now and recovery path is how can I allow myself to be okay just being human and being here, you know, talking to you or being heard by whoever's listening to this, you know, in the future, can we be okay just being right here where there's nothing that needs believing that there's nothing else that needs to be done? The situations that we unfortunately sometimes find ourselves in, you know, we're made to feel guilty about it. Then that can even lead us to feeling shameful about something. But sometimes it's not our fault. It's not our fault that we have to go back to mum and dad, or it's not our fault that, you know, the business, you know, beyond our control failed or whatever it might be. But we put the shame on ourselves and then that makes us even more anxious. Everything once again gets out of control. And you're just in this downward spiral. I mean, does that resonate? Yeah. I think that, again, I've used the word binary thinking a lot because it's a big concept for me. But this belief that, like, if X happens, you know, the world ends. And if Y happens, everything is going to be okay. Yeah. It's a, it's a very painful mental construct. And it's very hard to see because it feels very convincing. Yeah. You know, I need to get this promotion I need to make more, you know, I get this raise. I need my kid to get into this school. Like this need, we just throw this word around, not even externally, that's true too, but within ourselves. And I do it Hmm. too. And I'm trying to let go of that and say, there's very little I actually need, you know, in the world to be okay and be safe and be loved if I am willing to receive that love from those around me. But we get caught up in the 45 other thousand other things where we don't really have those kind of needs, but we put like a life or death intensity on them. I quite agree, Matthew. Um, you know, sometimes we can all get to very dark places and you spoke about your issues with bulimia and so on and so forth. And indeed even suicide ideation, but sometimes the ideation of suicide isn't just in your head, it becomes something that's in your heart. And then it becomes a project. Yeah, it is such a hard. So I I guess first thing is just sharing compassion with people that are in the midst of that struggle. It is such a painful part of the mental health experience that we have, at least in the Western society, this that I'm familiar, more familiar with that one, that mental health services are so poor and so poorly funded and resourced, and it can make it very challenging to access. And when you most need access, you are least equipped to navigate and self-advocate because you're going through a mental health crisis. 
if you're in the midst of that, or if you have somebody in your life that is going through, keep asking for help. I think that's the biggest piece, like over and over again, and find the ability if you can, you know, to go on until you find something that's working. Even in my privilege, when I've been going through a hard time, you know, which has led me to the the edge of feeling like I was going to take my own life. I just have to believe that I just keep going and keep asking for help and keep trying things, whether that's different types of services or telling different people I'm close to till one understands or going to the hospital if the, you know, phone call didn't work. It's that taking the next step towards recovery and towards trying to live and get happier that I believe ultimately can help us get to a better place. But my experience with mental health is it's not a linear path and there are a lot of walks that can come. And the good news I also is there often are resources, many of which are free, um, that I don't know about until I kind of continue to throw myself against the universe. Yeah, I quite agree. But, you know, you're going to get people like uh, Harry and uh, Meghan and other celebrities who will say, you know, reach out and, you know, and touch and all that stuff. But <laughs> the only thing that happens because the mental health system around the world is so under-resourced and they've got so much pressure that you'll reach out. And sometimes, as I say, unless you've got those resources... You'll reach out, but there's nobody there. There isn't a simple answer to getting help. I am really big, again, on just like people reaching out in any form to anyone and just saying like, hey, I need help. I have a problem. I have a challenge. I'm an addict. I'm depressed. That human connection, whether that's at the emergency room or with a friend or a safe family member or a therapist, whatever the environment might be, Mm. I really do believe for me, that is always and continues to be in my day-to-day life, just like the foundational step is not being alone in that moment. You practice something called morning pages, which I believe is inspired by a lady called Julia Cameron. How does that work? I got a book called The Artist's Way, which is by Julia Cameron. And it's basically a, a book that it's, it's a 12-week kind of book. You read a chapter a week and do some exercises. You can do it yourself or in a group with others that is focused on creativity, Mm -hmm. reconnecting and reigniting a sense of sort of creative expression. I believe you used to use Headspace a lot. Uh, Yeah, I used Headspace for years and I loved it. I mean, I did thousands of minutes, I think, because it keeps track in kind of a gamified fashion. And I recommend it to people still. Um, It just at some point, I kind of just stopped using it. You know, I was like, okay, I'm not going to pay for it if I'm not using it. I was still meditating. I just was using a different style of meditation that was just silent and me just sitting and staring. (laughs) I know that you get involved with volunteering, especially to do with mental health services. And it's interesting, isn't it, Matthew? Because sometimes it's actually more rewarding just to give of your time and to listen to people than having just a paycheck. Not to say that, you know, you shouldn't earn money, but there are different types of rewards and some can be more fulfilling than others. Giving back what I've received allows me to keep it is how I think about it in my life. So I've been given gifts of sanity or serenity or mental health where I had illness. Sharing that with others in some fashion 
uh, kind of, I think, allows me to keep those gains and that health. And that can be helping one-on-one with people. But I think that's, for me, still the biggest piece of it is just working with other people who are in pain in the way that I was in pain. And I'm not a therapist. I'm not trained. All I can offer in those environments is my experience and strength and hope of what I have been through and what's worked for me and what hasn't. And they can do with that information what they want. I think it's what you do with whatever gift you have and to use your wealth of knowledge, your wealth of experience to share that with others. And that's always going to be worth more surely than simply money in the bank. Or maybe it's depositing a different kind of wealth into a higher type of bank. People sharing their personal stories with others has transformative, you know, effects on both the person sharing and the people receiving. And so that is, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm right. I'm right in that. And that can be in a forum like this, which is speaking to whoever wants to listen whenever in the universe in the future. And that can just be, you know, a chat on the phone with a friend. Um, But I think that is a big piece of how we navigate for me has been a big piece, certainly of navigating recovery and just living. And I'm, I'm learning. I'm still learning a lot in this area, honestly. Like my instinct when I feel in pain, I was feeling a lot of shame this morning around something that happened yesterday. This sense of shame, like I'm bad, I did something wrong, kind of little kid feeling of like, you know, being scolded. And my instinct in that, even today, you know, after a decade of this, is to just bot- pretend it doesn't exist and distract myself. <laughs> it's like, still the MO and the recovery is that I could be like, oh, maybe I don't want to do that over after an hour or two of trying that and being like, this isn't feeling great. And then, you know, getting on the phone, calling somebody and just saying, this is what I feel this about. And having that sense of connection, um, you know, is still feels very radical, very uncomfortable um, and is by absolutely the most efficient way for me to start to feel better. But it's the last thing I often am programmed in my brain to do. Of course, you've done so much. You've achieved so much in your own life, Matthew. There's Earn Up, where you were, you know, you were managing over $10 billion worth of funds for clients. And then, of course, your work with McKinsey. And I think about all that stuff and I'm thinking about where you are now and people talk about this idea of authentic leadership of people who listen. And I think that's what you're doing now. And when men who are particularly, that they have a problem with talking about mental health issues for men, if they hear people like you, I think it gives them a chance to understand themselves better as well as others. People that inspire me, you know, are, are people certainly that have that ability to create lightness in in others and energize others and help create that sense of oneness and community in, in global sense. And that could be within a family or a country or the world, and uh, which ties into what you were just describing. Yeah, I mean, that feels like the kinds of leaders that change the world for the better, I hope. And creating more love, more connection, and just a deeper sense of oneness amongst people as opposed to division, to me, to a large extent, is 
the point of all of this. So what's next for you, Matthew? (laughs) Yeah, it's a good question. So I guess I'm trying to let go for the time being of the thought that I have to have some massive future project or thing that I achieve kind of to our earlier conversation of, can it be enough to just be here, be me, be a little bit lost and not know where I'm going? Um, So the truth is, it's kind of the first time in my adult life since probably I was 10 or 12 that I don't have a massive project, you know, uh, external project uh, that I'm working on. And that's scary. Um, But I'm trying to let that be present and let the universe sort of bring whatever's next to be next. Uh, I am doing things, mostly some volunteer oriented work in the financial fraud space in the US. And I am uh, still advising earn up, although I'm not an executive there, and I don't have any direct reports. So I have some sort of side projects. But I would say other than just sort of living and spending time with family and staying healthy, I don't have a a big external project yet. Uh, And I don't know when or if that will manifest, which is uncomfortable, um, but also trying to lean into it and let that be okay. You know what I think? I think that you do have a project and I think that that project is called living and these other projects, which you, you know, became obsessive with, uh, maybe that is part of that project in terms of not getting so involved with projects like that, but, you know, concentrating, focusing on the most important project of all, which is just, you know, living. I think that's totally brilliant. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. I, I feel I feel affirmed. Um, yeah, you know, I it is it is a project. You know, the project is to your side, loving, being present, and being you know in the world without some massive external you know goal to chase after uh, is just a way of being in the world. Excellent. So, um, would you like to um, point listeners to resources on the net or elsewhere, Matthew? If people are having trouble, just Google, you know, National Suicide Hotline. Um, you know, there there is a hotline 24-7 in the UK. I know I've seen there's one advertised too. Call that number. That is there and don't don't be alone. And then I would say the other stuff I would direct people towards is, you know, especially if cost is an issue, then uh, like in the US environment, the National Alliance on Mental Illness is a great organization that has groups all over the US. And there are a lot of them are digital right now. So you can join from anywhere, you know, where you can again, get peer support for mental health. Um, in the UK, there's probably commensurate, you know, nonprofit peer groups. Um, so those are just some resources, you know, at, at a national scale, reach out for help. If you want help, I can be reached. Twitter is probably the simplest way for, you know, people I don't know to reach out. LinkedIn for me is a bit of a black hole. <laughs> but on Twitter, I'm at Matthew Wins, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-W-I-N-S. So, you know, if people have uh, specific comments or want other guidance, if I can provide it, I will do my best to do so. We all have our demons. Uh, and we try to avoid them. Facing them takes courage. And when you do so, I think it makes you stronger and them weaker. Thank you again, Matthew. Thank you, John. And to everybody else, take care. And remember, you really aren't alone.
Oh, that's great. Been traveling these wide roads for so long. My heart's been far from you for 10,000 miles gone. Oh, I want to come here and give every part of me. But there's blood on my hands. Thought and Leaders is a goodbye production. It is heard around the world, but we can't continue broadcasting without your support. If you are interested in sponsoring the show or are looking for award-winning content, including strategy and coaching, please DM us or email reinvent at me.com. That's reinvent at me.com.
it's really weird, really, isn't it? Because, you know, sometimes just giving, you know, giving time, listening um, to people, it's, it's actually more rewarding than even money. I know it sounds crazy, but it's, it's much more satisfying 